us. Coach Kevin Henderson, Timken High School, head football coach. It seems somewhat appropriate on this particular Sunday where we are celebrating, some of us are celebrating, the end of a perfect season in Columbus, Ohio. When I met Coach Henderson about two months ago, I found my way into Timken High School, signed in at the register table, and I passed whatever I had to pass with, with those good folks, and I found my way up to Kevin's classroom. And I just kind of spotted him, and I had a conversation. I looked up at his bulletin board behind his desk, and there was a picture of Woody Hayes. <laughs> a few minutes later, I learned Kevin's personal email address. Woody, with some numbers, at Hotmail or AOL or whatever it is, Com. I thought, this is a guy I can get to know. <laughs> so w Kevin has a smile on his face because of yesterday's results. He is uh, a teacher, of course, at, at Timken as well, and teaches a, a business curriculum. We've invited Kevin here because we have a special relationship with his football team. Some of you are instrumental in that relationship where we've been serving to his team some pregame meals. How many years has that gone on? Do we know? About four or five years. So it's, it's, it's been a, a pretty good ongoing relationship. And I thought it was time that we might meet Coach in a new way, as a friend. Uh, when I described to him what we might be looking for today, I said to him, just pretend that you and I have gone out for coffee and we're going to have a conversation for an hour in a coffee shop, and when we're done, we're going to know more about each other than we did at the beginning of the hour. So he's going to tell us some things about his life. Bef and before he comes up to, to begin, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today that a friend is here with us to talk to us and tell us about his life and his work. We ask your blessing upon Kevin and his work in the classroom and on the athletic fields. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do this in a fairly informal way. Uh, if you have a question just about at any time, stick your hand in the air and, and Kevin will take your question. He is encouraging questions from us. So, Kevin, you're on. We're going to put him on this mic here. I think this would be easier to deal with this. This will feedback. So just stick that over your ear.
So I better take these out. Um, hello to everyone. I prepared some things here and I'm going to just try to, to follow along with this. Uh, this is uncharted waters for me, so uh, if I seem a little nervous, uh, this is not my normal locker room setting, so. Um, I'd like to say hello to everyone and I am honored to have the opportunity to speak to you this morning. I was a little apprehensive when Jim first asked me to do this, but I figured if you're willing to sit through this and not run out the door, then I will be willing to share a few things with you. Unfortunately, I've never had to do this, but I will give it a go. <clears throat> I will start by giving some background information about circumstances in my life that helped to shape my personality or that helped to shape my character. I will start with the 60s, but let me preface that with um, I'm currently married. Um, this is a second marriage. Uh, I've got four children, uh, all living in Canton, and uh, doing well right now, so I'd like to mention that. Um, but let me start with the 60s, if I could go back that far. I don't know if any of you would remember that that far back. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the 60s were my preteen years uh, as a young athlete in Canton, Ohio. And as a 10-year-old, I played Mighty Might Baseball for the Southwest Lions Minor League. Anybody from the Southwest? Okay. Um, and as all minor leaguers feel, I felt I should have been on the major league team. But in actuality, I wasn't ready for the majors. My mother would attend all of my games, and she knew her sports. And knowing her sports, she also knew that I wasn't ready for the majors. <laughs> she knew I needed some work, so thanks to, for lack of a better word, her encouragement to my stepfather, uh, he would take me to the park, and we would usually practice for a half an hour to 45 minutes. And it never was any longer because he always seemed to have something else to do. In fact, during our workout sessions, he would hit ground balls so hard, I could tell that he was mad at me for having to do what my mother encouraged him to do. And that was simply to take that boy out to practice a little bit. I can vividly recall telling one of my friends that I would always, one of my friends that I would always take to play first base, you know, I play shortstop, third base, second base, whatever, and I always have to, to throw it, and my stepfather would hit the ball to me. Um, I can vividly recall telling one of my friends that I would always take to play first base for me, hey man, doesn't this guy realize that I'm a kid? He's hitting the ball to me like I'm a grown man. And my friend would simply say, yeah, I know. <laughs> it was as if it was a battle of wills. His saying that if I make this session, these sessions as miserable as possible for him, maybe he'll tell his mom that he doesn't want to play anymore. And mine saying, I'm not going to let him show me up in front of my friend. 
That's how those sessions started, but they ended in a very different way. In the end, my mother no longer needed to encourage him to practice with me. He began to realize that no matter how hard he would hit the ball to me, I would dig it out of the dirt. He began to realize that I had developed into a pretty good baseball player, and he pushed me harder to get even better. And I can proudly say that all of our hard work would culminate in the summer of 1969 with me being a part of the Moose Lodge 233 Lions City Championship team, along with Craig Lance, Roy Ellis, Ray Ellis, Mike McGoy, and Roger Bethel, just to name a few of my teammates. So what started as a battle of wills would ultimately develop my will to win. So that was pretty much uh, tried to just summarize the 60s for you. We have any questions? Yes, sir. Yes, he, uh, he was actually a, a coached at, at, at some point. Um, I mean, he had a, I mean, he just passed away in February. And what started off as a, it was a, we had a love-hate-love love relationship as, as a lot of step-parents will with, with kids. And um, it started off love-hate love, as I said, but um, ultimately, over the years, we had a relationship that was immeasurable. In fact, he, uh, he spent the last couple years, he, he passed away with cancer, but he spent the past couple years coming up to Fawcett in the press box watching games and everything, and, and don't let anybody say how dumb a coach I am, you know, because he was right there to you know, <laughs> he was right there to defend me, but he was always there, games, he and my mom, my little sister, that kind of thing, other family, my staunch supporter. I could tell you some stories, and, and I'll get to that as we progress, but, but uh, it, was a, it was a tough situation early on, but, you know, you, you, and when you grow into a man, you begin to understand man things, I guess you know, from, from uh, my background. So that was the 60s. Have, were you an only child? No. Um, I have an older sister, and uh, I have a younger sister. My older sister is two years older, three years older, and my younger sister is 11 years older. Uh, my older sister and I have the same mom and dad, and my younger sister is mom and stepfather. So there was kind of little, you know. <laughs> Um, let's progress to the 70s. In the early 70s, I was a member of two winning football teams at Timken Vocational High School. We went six and three my junior year and five and four my senior year. We only played nine games back then. And in the process, I guess you could say we taught the younger kids how to win because they went 8-0-1 in 1974, the year after I graduated. I played for Charles Sonny Spielman. And my teams don't know it, but when they hear me yell, you gotta love it, it comes from Coach Spielman. I am still in contact with a few members of those teams. Um, any questions in regards to that part of it? 
because I'm, I'm jumping around here. Look, yes, sir. <laughs> um, honestly, my stepfather wanted me to go to McKinley, so at that time, <laughs> so, I mean, just to be honest, and, and of course, back then, you had to take a test to get into Temkin, and, and going in, I was a pretty smart kid, but... <laughs> It's amazing what four years will do. <laughs> what position did you play? Um, well, hundred pounds ago, I was a quarterback. So, <laughs> uh, and I was a strapling six foot one and a half, a hundred and sixty-five pound quarterback. So, uh, hundred pounds ago. So. <laughs> Uh, I thought I wanted to be a welder, and after waking up in the middle of the night with, I think they called it arc flash, and your eyes feel like they just pulled your eyelid up and poured glass in it, and you were blinking over it every time, so I don't know if I want to do this. Thank God for Mr. Cole, who was uh, my instructor at the time. He always told us about keeping a cold potato, raw potato in the refrigerator. So if you would ever get arc flash, you cut the potato, lay in the bed, lay on your back with the potato in your eyes, and it would drain all of that stuff out. So I remember that. Anybody ever hear that? It's a, it works. It works, trust me. You've heard that? It works. <laughs> um, I was, uh, I guess I could say at times I did. I don't know, at that time, I don't know, just knowing and understanding my personality now, I don't know if I was challenged enough. I mean, I'm, I was like, you know, I can remember I, at the, in the fourth grade at Lathrop, uh, there was a, my fourth grade teacher was Ralph Staudenheimer, and, uh, he put a play on, and I was the MC, and I never forgot that, and, and that was the kind of stuff that, that I, you know, I kind of like to do, you know, in front of a crowd, uh, you know, that was then, it's a little different now, <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> but I did, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I was challenged enough, or I don't know if I allowed myself to be challenged enough because of, uh, you know, my peers and what have you, just trying to fit in and do what everybody else did and everything. Like, when I went to that, you know, that building across the street, it was like, my mom kept tight reins on me. And um, the only place that I could go for more than one hour was the boys' club. Any place else, it was one hour. And you better be home, with, you know, in, in one hour. And I can tell you a story about the day I challenged that. Serious? Well, I was 15. And, and as I said, um, 
My mom ruled with an iron fist. I say an iron fist. She ruled with just, just love, tough love. But um, the only place that I could go for more than an hour was at the old Kent Police Boys Club, not the Jack Babe Stern Center. And uh, so one summer, her and my stepfather were having, you know, in and out. And, you know, I'm in the house now. He's, you know, on the outs or whatever, I don't know. And I'm the man of the house. And it's time for me to show mom one hour isn't enough. All my friends do what they want to do, you know. Okay. So I was down at Lathrop playing basketball. And I would go over to the old kindergarten room and check the clock. And I made sure, you know, after one hour, I'm going to stay an additional hour. And, <laughs> you know, God rest my mom's soul. But <laughs> so I finally made it home. I know I'm an hour late. And my mom, she says, uh, what time is it? And I told her. And she said, what time were you supposed to be home? And I told her. And I was a little surly. And she looked at me as if to say, think he's trying to be a little surly. So my mom, I don't know if any of you ever got a whooping, but, <laughs> but, but I used to get whoopings and it was a, a belt, a, a jump rope, an extension cord or what have you. That's just how it was. That was handed down, I guess. But, but my mom, I'll never forget, my mom went and got a green jump rope, those jump, plastic jump ropes you jump with, and she <laughs> folded it over and she came back to the kitchen. <clears throat> and she said, so I told you to be home at a certain time. I said, okay. And I'm standing there like, yeah, no. You know, I'm a man now. Do what you got to do. So my mom started hitting me. <clears throat> but I'm a man. I'm just taking it. She's hitting me. And it kind of ticked her off a little bit. He's really being surly. So she was hitting me on the legs and, you know, on the hips. And, and when I stood there as if to say, do what you got to do, lady. She stepped back and looked at me, and she came down across my neck, hit me here and here, and I said, uh-oh, I aborted the mission. <laughs> so, you know, I started acting like a 15-year-old was supposed to act because, you know, mom wasn't playing that day. And I ran out in the backyard, and when I came back in, we, <laughs> we both laughed about it, but, you know, I mean, I would never, ever want to hurt my mom's feelings. So. That was, uh, that was my experience of trying to show my mom who the boss was, so <laughs> it didn't work. So, um, <clears throat> let me progress to the 70s, uh, I mean continuing to the 70s. Uh, at the end of my senior year uh, in the football season, I was sitting at home uh, after school one evening when my best friend at the time came by the house. Uh, he invited me to come to the boys club to learn how to box. I did so reluctantly, but hindsight tells me that my experiences in boxing have greatly influenced who I am even to this day. I will never forget that first day in the gym with my best friend. And I, I, didn't, I didn't write about it, but I, I'll, I'll just tell you what happened, my best friend. Uh, in fact, he just had a, his great nephew uh, Jeff Richardson played for Cam McKinley this year, but I won't call his name, but he's in the Richardson family. But uh, he came by the house and he said, hey man, let's go, let's go box. Uh, 
finally talked me into doing it. And, and uh, so we get to the gym, and he's trying to rush me into the gloves. Hey, put the gloves on, you know. Hey, put the gloves on. Okay, I'm going to put the gloves on. He said, come on, let's get in the ring. And I get in the ring, and he proceeds to start jabbing me in, in the face. And wait, something's not right about this. So I just started watching him, and I started jabbing him back. I didn't know anything about boxing. I started jabbing him back, and just so happened I was a little stronger than he was, and my arms were a little bit longer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so after about three or four good stiff jabs, he said, let's wait till George gets here. <laughs> I don't know if any of you remember George Milnes. He trained us at the, the old boys club, but uh, he said, let's wait till George gets here. But in the meantime, there was a, um, a fighter at the club, and I had no idea who this guy was. He came in, he was the uh, open division heavyweight, and he said, anybody want to spar? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, let's go. I mean, that's just, you know. So I got in the ring with this guy, and I, didn't, I had no clue who he was. I learned later on, and I, you know, we ended up you know, going to different tournaments, but, but uh, that was my first day in the gym. But anyway, we got in the ring, and, and since I beat my buddy, you know, got my buddy a few times with that good stiff jab, I said, okay, I'm going to just do this on this guy. And I did. I hit him you know, once, and I hit him twice, and oh, this is getting good. But I didn't know anything about boxing, so I didn't know that as I was jabbing him, my right hand was down by my waist. So for him to be an open division fighter, he knew that pretty soon he was going to throw a left hook and hit me in my jaw, <laughs> which, is, which is what he did. <laughs> he hit me in my jaw, and he knocked me down. And I said, man. I knew what I had done wrong without even having ever been trained. I got to protect my face. So I got back up, and again, they, you hear the bells and whistles. I don't know if anybody's ever been knocked down, but you hear the bells and whistles. I mean, he knocked me to the ground. I fell to my knees, but when I got up, I said, okay, I know what I did wrong. And thank God, right at that moment, George came in. <laughs> because he was probably going to knock me out <laughs> if we would have continued, continued. But he was an open division fighter at the time, and he had had numerous fights, and I would learn later on that this guy was, this guy, and he was a heavyweight. I was a middleweight at the time. This guy was rough. He was rough at the time. But that was my first day in the gym. But <laughs> I only had five amateur fights in the Golden Gloves tournaments, and, and I'm proud to say I remain undefeated in the ring. And that's not because I was a great fighter. It was because I was probably six foot one and a half and with long arms. And my opponents were usually, at middleweight, were usually shorter guys with arms about this long. <laughs> and I remember a lesson that, that Ronnie Harris would, would teach me. Um, I kept telling him, man, I can't keep them off of me. And he, and he put his hand. He put my hand on his forehead, and he said, you see that? And then he stuck his hand up right here, <laughs> and his, his hand only reached to here. So he said, as long as you keep them out there, you're okay. And I remember that. So that's why I was undefeated, not because I was a great fighter. Um, and with that same boxing, <clears throat> I fought on the same card. Not, I didn't fight these people but I fought on the same card as three future world champions. And that would be um, 
um, Mike Dokes, who went on from Akron, and he went on to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Uh, uh, Mike Dokes, that was at the old Moonlight Ballroom, the old Moonlight Ballroom. And, uh, and then Ray Mancini, we fought in the Packard Music Hall in Warren. And there was another guy that was a stand-in for the title fight, but he messed around and won the fight, ticked everybody off, but he was the world champion. His name was Harry Arroyo. He was from the Youngstown area, too. So at the time, I didn't know that was going to happen, but, but it did. <laughs> I always say, you know, I fought on the same car with three future world champions, and, and look at me, you know. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm thankful that uh, as far as the boxing piece is concerned, I'm thankful that I, I did what I did. I learned a little bit about boxing, but I'm also, I was never into it. I just did it because a buddy tricked me into going. And the next thing I knew, George had entered us in tournaments. And I'm like, well, we got to go to West Virginia for what? You know, <laughs> so, you know, we were in tournaments and stuff. So that's how that all happened. Not because I was, you know, thought I was a great fighter or anything. Um, any questions? You continued baseball in your high school career. <laughs> why, why did you discontinue boxing? Uh, <laughs> you want, I always, as I ask the kids, you want to lie or you want the truth? Um, I don't know if you would remember um, a guy by the name of Rick Noggle. Yeah. He was a fighter, you know, he was, he was a pretty good fighter in the area. Well, Nick fought at, the, I mean, uh, Rick fought out of our, our gym, and, and uh, this was that night at the Moonlight Ballroom. There was a guy from Akron that came down to fight Rick. His name was Rocky Cash. Well, um, along with Rocky Cash came a guy by the name of Mike Dokes, who had on a pair of white Chuck Taylors, a pair of blue jeans, and a white t-shirt. He had no equipment. But we had a guy in our club at the time, his name was Tony Hoxett, the legendary Hoxett family, played football at McKinley and all that stuff, but, but uh, Tony was like the open division heavyweight that kind of, uh, actually light heavyweight that uh, kind of ran the gym. You know, he was a pretty tough customer. But in the tournaments that we would go to, they didn't have anyone in his weight class. So Tony started saying, find me a body. I want a body. I don't care if you have to go to the morgue. Find me a body. So on this night, George, George said, hmm, you want to fight Dokes? And Tony said, with a gulp, and I'm watching all this. This is like my third fighter, second or third fight into this thing. And Tony like took a gulp and said, I'll fight anybody. Okay, no problem. Tony gets a fight. Well, also there with that night was Ronnie Harris, uh, Stanley Howard, one of his assistant trainers, and his father. Bruh Harris, and uh, they started telling Tony, "Hey man, you don't want to, you don't want to fight this guy, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to mess with with Mike Dokes." And at that time, I was 17. I would find out later that Mike Dokes was 15, 
And I would also find out that at 15 years old, Mike Dokes was already a national AAU champion. So make a long story short, Tony had talked himself into this fight. So they get in the ring. This is at the Moonlight Ballroom. They get in the ring, and Tony storms across the ring. And they clinched in Doke's corner. They separate, and they come back around to, to Tony's corner. And Tony threw a wild right hand at Doke's. And Doke's laying back and dropped a left hook on him. And I haven't seen it be, hadn't seen it before and haven't seen it since, but Tony's hands went like this. And he just fell back <laughs> and bounced off the canvas. So when I saw that and I was a middleweight, knowing that I was going to gain weight and become a light heavyweight, I started taking boxing a little less serious because I didn't want anything to do with Michael Dokes. And, and that's a true story. I mean, he was, uh, he was a 15-year-old, I mean, a national AAU champion that says something. So, and he, he just went through Tony like nothing. So that was my experience with boxing, and that's one of the reasons why I could never take it serious. So um, the late 70s included stints at playing Class A baseball as well as semi, playing semi-pro football. You always hold out dreams of making it to the big leagues in any sport, but I can honestly say that I didn't have a clue at the time as to just how exact a science that process is. So, you know, it's a pretty exact science if you, if you want to make it to the bigs. <laughs> it's my, my, my time up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I did experience, uh, you know, baseball, you know, played in high school, and then uh, at the time they put together, uh, Kim Thorne Motors, I think, was the first, uh, maybe it was the Canton Merchants first, and then Kim Thorne Motors took the sponsorship and, and backed the team, that, uh, mostly African-American team, and uh, we played Donna Cooks, and you know we took a lot of a lot of lumps, but we we played some good baseball down there too. So, but uh, the semi-pro thing was uh, that's just something that we did um, at that time. I was uh, working on the railroad, um, trying to train and condition at work you know, get my workout in on the tracks. At that time, I carried a 90-pound jackhammer um, 10, 12 hours a day. It, what, what equated to two miles a day, you know, driving down spikes, that kind of thing. And, and on my breaks, I would make sure every day I got 300 push-ups in. So um, I felt that would prepare me for football. And I was in decent shape, you know, but certainly not football shape. But uh, the... The one thing that kind of dissuaded me from, from the football thing, and, and I won't say it dissuaded me, it just, you know, I became too old to chase that dream. And I'll get to that. Um, but we were playing the Columbus Winds, and um, again, I was a quarterback. And, uh, well, two things happened in that game that, that 
made it a bad day for us. The first thing was we had a running back that was injured. He was our main, he was our go-to guy. Uh, they called him Sugar Bear. And uh, Sugar Bear was, had gotten into a car accident. So Sugar Bear was down. This was at Franklin County Stadium in Columbus, and we were playing the Columbus Winds. And Sugar Bear got down there, and they were warming up. And Sugar Bear proceeded to, to tell their guys, you guys better be glad I ain't playing. And they, if you know anything about linebackers, that's a challenge to a linebacker. So they had a couple linebackers that went crazy. And he proceeded to tell Sugar Bear, and I'm going to tone it down a little bit, there's nothing wrong with your neck. Go get your stuff on. <laughs> and this guy was jumping like <laughs> this high off the ground as he was saying this. And he was, so... That happened, so kind of ticked the whole team off. So, so that happened. Now, now Sugar Bear's gotten these guys ticked off. Now, again, I'm a quarterback, and and uh, we called a, a a screenplay, which is timing. You 1001, 1002, dump it. Well, these guys are a little bit better than our guys, so there was no 1002. <laughs> it, it was it was it was 1001 and oh my goodness so you know I can recall dumping the ball and uh, at that time I can show you pictures of this at that time I liked everything tight on me so I had two rolls of of uh, that athletic tape around my waistband and before I got up I realized that that tape both rolls of tape were busted and my chin strap was busted. But I got out and finished the drive. Now, a couple things happened after that. My stepfather was there. And he was, uh, he was always a, a, a staunch supporter of what I did. And the only reason I got up, because these two guys hit me, and I'll tell you who they are, in a minute, but these two guys hit me, and I said, the stars again, like in the gym, the stars, and I, could, I remember looking up at the top of the stadium, and I said, I got to get up. My old man's over there, and if I don't get up, he's going to call me a sissy. I'm a grown man. So I got up, I finished the drive, <laughs> and uh a uh, guy that had played for Akron, Dave Laubacher, he, we misconnected in the back of the end zone. But So when I came out, I walked by my old man, and he said, I'm going to tone it down. He said, you're a bad customer. I said, what? He said, you're a bad customer. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I didn't think you was getting up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, always there. But that particular hit did a couple things for me. Um, one, 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 it almost killed me. But then I would, uh, I had a buddy that played, I was playing for the Tuscarawas County Vikings at the time, and I had a buddy that played for the Canton Bulldogs at the time. And I was telling him that story. In, in fact, um, before, at the end of that game, I went over to these guys and I said, look here, man. I said, man, y'all didn't have to hit me that hard, man. 
And I can never forget, he said, you better come over here where you got some blocking, little brother. <laughs> and it sounded good. <laughs> but I would tell my buddy about that story and these guys' numbers, and he said, man, that was uh, Gary Doolin. And uh, I said, who? He said, Gary Doolin. He said he played for Ohio State. So okay. So I started thinking about the fact that this guy played for Ohio State. This guy played for Woody Hayes. So it was like I was like marinating in that hit, you know. <laughs> I mean, he almost killed me, but it felt good after, <laughs> after the fact. So, but um, that Gary Doolin that I just mentioned, he, uh, he ended up playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. And this was in, I'm, I'm guessing, 81 because it was the strike year, as I remember. And uh, he played with, the, I, they called him scabs, but he did so well, they kept him on after the vets came back. But my mind told me that here's a guy that was just barely hanging on in the NFL, and he almost killed me. So you think about the greats that have played this game, the Randy Weiss, the Reggie Weiss, and all these kind of guys. And I immediately thought about the NFL quarterbacks. That's probably the most dangerous position in the world because you've got 11 guys that would like to do nothing more than, than hurt something on you every play. So I, I had a great respect for that, and that kind of like said, hold up, you know. You know, you didn't go, go through this uh, uh, the right way, so forget about it. Any questions? Um, the 80s, I already got into the early 80s. Uh, again, I'm trying to raise a family, and uh, but family matters <coughs> in the early 80s curtailed any further pursuits of, of that elusive dream. And then once my son became of age, I <coughs> focused my attention on his development as an athlete. And I guess like most fathers, that's when I started coaching a little bit. So. I guess the late 80s were consumed by me dabbling in coaching basketball, flag football, and even soccer. And I say it that way because I had signed my son up to play soccer just for the conditioning piece of it. And, and uh, the lady, uh, her daughter ended up being a, a very good athlete at Perry, but anyway, she was a coach for the YMCA that's no longer there. Uh, and we were practicing for a couple weeks, and then she said, well, you guys ought to be okay next week. I think the kids are picking this stuff up. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I'm going on vacation next week. I said, what? She said, you'll be fine. So I ended up coaching <laughs> soccer, and I didn't know anything about soccer, so I immediately went to the library Got a book, corner kick, and, and all this kind of three main things you want to know in soccer. I, I learned them, and that's what I, I taught, but I didn't know, you know. I think the best thing I did at that time was <clears throat> try to mask the fact that I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> from the kids. So <laughs> that, was the, that was the 80s. I mean, um, you know, that was... Uh, you know, again, the family thing and, and, and what have you. But um, the 90s, is, uh, this is where I guess it gets a little interesting. Uh, 
1990, I was presented with what I would call an opportunity of a lifetime. I was actually in the process of starting a new team in the Cannes Midget League. When I was offered an assistant coaching position at my alma mater, Timken, and it's crazy how all that transpired, and you know, I'll tell you how that happened. I had to interview with the Midget League board to see if they felt I was qualified and ready to make the commitment to coaching the Midget League and to bring in a, t a new team. Um, I had uh, gotten sponsorship, you know, Dumont's, uh, who sponsors just about everybody. And uh, at that time, I had gone to, to Kent and, and I went down to Brook High School down in West Virginia for a couple clinics. Uh, in fact, Jerry Sandusky was at that clinic. Neither here nor there, but. Um, so I had done those things, just trying to, to learn some things about the game, you know, other than, you know, having played and just going off of that knowledge. Um, as fate would have it, a member of the interview committee was also a cousin to the Timken coach. And after hearing what I had done to prepare myself to bring a new team into the league and to coach this team, he shared that information with his cousin who at the time was looking for a wide receiver coach. So I was informed a couple of days later that Lonnie Ford wanted to talk to me and I had to go see him. I don't know if any of you would remember Lonnie, Lonnie Ford. He coached at Timken, uh, among other places. Played at Camp McKinley, legend at McKinley and all that kind of stuff, but he was the head coach at Timken at that time. And uh, again, uh, <laughs> his cousin told me that I ought to go sing. <coughs> so in my mind, I said, whoa, Ginger, <coughs> I haven't coached one down to midget league football, and this guy wants me to coach high school. I was actually intimidated by that thought, and I was a little reluctant. Um, I would actually drive through downtown just trying to work up enough nerve to go see Lonnie. And then one day, I was driving by the old white building over here, and the light stopped me, and Lonnie and his cousin were sitting right there. <laughs> and uh, uh, Lonnie said to me at that time, he said, hey, I got one spot left. It's yours if you want it. Come and see me. And I asked him when. We met the next day and he officially offered me the position. So that presented a dilemma for me because at the time uh, I was working as a security guard for Buckeye and I was working at Sugardale's. So in my mind I said, well, in the past few months I've seen the sergeant rearrange schedules for everyone if they had something to do. So I'll just let him know, hey, I've got this opportunity and see if you can work, you know, changes in schedule or what have you with someone that, so that I can pursue this dream, I guess. And well, <coughs> make a long story short, that next day I called uh, the sergeant and he said, nobody wants to do it. And I said, what? I said, I've, you know, why not? He said, nobody wants to do it. 
And I said, man, just in, in that instance, I told him, I said, for me, this is an opportunity of a lifetime, and I don't think that I would, I'd ever be able to live with myself if I pass this up. I said, I'm not coming in. <laughs> I just didn't go in. And I started to, you know, and eventually, you know, I got hired into the system doing different things, but I just made the decision that I wanted to be a coach, and that was an opportunity for me, so I did that. Any questions? Well, <laughs> well, <clears throat> let me read this then. <laughs> I coached at, uh, I coached five years at Timken, three with Lonnie and two with Lynn Waffler before heading to Glen Oak for four years. And it always seemed to me that, you know, I coached here for, for five years and also coached basketball for nine years here. And when I got to Glen Oak and I had kids that were from the projects, I had kid were, that were, kids that were urban, suburban, that type deal. I had kids that were farmers. So uh, I'll never forget, I had a kid, um, I don't know if any of you would know Fred Thomas. He was the head coach at Glen Oak at the time. But he told me about one kid in particular. He said, watch him, he's got an attitude. You know, he lives in a $300,000 home. Okay. Um, but at each step that I was away from Timken, I went on to coach nine years at Walsh also, I always felt that these kids don't need what I have. I'm one of them. I came from the southwest end of Canton, the southeast end, went to Lathrop, you know. I, I, I ran these halls. And a lot of the things that, that I didn't get or there was no one there to provide those resources to me, I felt, always felt that I could give those resources to these kids. I'm one of them. So every time I was away, I always felt I need to be here. But, <clears throat> uh, and I'll tell you about that kid that lived in that $300,000 home. He's a doctor now. He's a doctor now. And the one thing that I always told him when we would get into it and he would do something that was a little across uh, the line, I would say, look here, man, you're better than that. You're better than that. Yeah, I am better than that, you know. So that, <laughs> that kind of, you know, that kind of, we, we built that relationship. So, <clears throat> um, again, after leaving Glen Oak, you know, Fred was dismissed at Glen Oak, and uh, Coach, Coach Dennison at Walsh called him that next day and, you know, told him he had a position for him. And he said he was also looking for a, um, a running backs coach, which Fred called me. You know, Fred is a Timken alumni. We played baseball together and all that kind of thing. So he called me and uh, <coughs> I met with Coach Dennison and he offered me the running back position. So 
Um, now, what that did for me was, you were talking about becoming a teacher, that provided me the opportunity to pursue and finish my education that I wasn't able to do prior to that. You know, I would take a class here, Kent Stark, Kent Salem, Kent State, these type places. But once I locked into Walsh in 1999, Coach Dennison said, hey, you get a couple classes, you know. So I locked in and they had a program, <coughs> a business program that, that uh, took two years. So, you know, I started off in, at Kent Stark in 1978. Wanted to be a gym teacher like, you know, every athlete did. Wanted to be a gym teacher, you know. They kill for gym teachers, uh, you know, positions now, but literally. Um, and then I switched to, <coughs> I wanted to be, uh, become an English major because I, I felt that I liked to write and talk a little bit. Uh, but then when this opportunity came, so I pursued that and I you know, got my degree in 2002, non-traditional student, uh, got my degree in 2002, uh, my bachelor's, and um, getting back to my mother, because my mom was always one to say, boy, you need to, you need to finish school. Well, that railroad job I had, it was supposed to be a summer job. I stayed. You know, I, you know, you got to travel, you got to do wild, crazy things, and you got paid, and you got to see some country and all those kind of things. So that was one of the reasons why I left um, Kent, because I was supposed to be preparing myself to walk on at Kent State. That never happened. But when I got my bachelor's degree in 2002, <coughs> the first thing I did was I went to Kinko's, and I made a color copy of my degree. And I bought a frame and I took it down to my mom's and I said, here, there you go. I said, I'm done with school. I'm never going to school again. And she was sitting on the couch and as mothers do, she looked at it, oh, that's nice. And, and before I walked out the door, she said, now boy, you know you ought to go on and get your master's. They paying for it. <laughs> I said, I ain't going back to school. So <clears throat> that was in 2002. In 2003, four, around in there, I started taking classes again, working on my master's. And in 2005, um, my mom passed. And uh, I, I stopped taking classes for a time just to, I don't know. I wasn't into it, but then I could still hear my mom saying, you know you ought to get your master's. So I went on to, to finish my master's in, in 2008, and when my mom died in 2005, I told myself I will not go to the cemetery until I have that master's degree in hand. And that's what I did, so um, got that out of the way. Now, here comes the, the, your question. Um, in 2008, um, the Timken job came open. Now I've gotten, I'd always 
now I won't say always, but it was, I had applied for the head coaching job before. I don't know why they let me go through that process because I didn't have a degree, that kind of thing. And, and I don't even know if I was ready at the time, but, but uh, I went through that process. I believe it was uh, Mike Hedrick became the head coach at that time. But then when this happened, um, a buddy of mine called me, Coach Hairston, called and said, hey, the football job is open. He said, you need to get on in here, man. You know, you're always reluctant to change. So that was the big thing for me. I was a full-time assistant now at Walsh. You know, Coach Dennison had made me a full-time assistant. I mean, I just was on the board football all day, you know, recruiting. And, I, you know, I love to recruit and that type thing. So, but when he told me I had the opportunity to, to come back to Timken and I really thought about it, I said, you know, every time I was away, I wanted to be back. I wanted to come back. So this is an opportunity for me to come back if I can, you know, get the position. So ultimately, we, I interviewed and everything, and I told them this, you know, thinking that rose-colored glasses, I will teach, but I prefer not to. <laughs> because, I mean, I, you know, I just did football day at Walsh, so, you know, why not? But... The teaching part came in when they found a position for me, what you witnessed in my classroom, the business management, excuse me, the business foundations course. And that's how I became a teacher, since my background was in business and, you know, career in tech was trying to put that part together. There I was. And so they threw a 50-year-old man in the classroom for the first time at Timken. <laughs> so, and I'm going to just tell you one more story about that since you, you say I manage my classroom well. Um, my first day in the classroom, I'm nervous because the, the, the main thing that I wrestled with as a teacher, certainly, I mean, I'm a little long in tooth to be thrown in the classroom. So, the, the, the one thing that I had to wrestle with was classroom, classroom jargon, football jargon. You can say these things to the football players, but you can't say these things to the kids in the classroom. So something would happen and I would, <coughs> can't do that. So, but <laughs> my first day in the classroom, this, this kid, big guy, kept telling me, he's, I kept telling him, look here, man, be quiet. Be quiet. So last time, well, we got a board member back here. <laughs> last time, I, the last time he kept, I, I broke a rule. Don't tell kids to shut up. I said, shut up, man. And this kid tells me, sounds like you want to come to the hood, old man. So I told him, which one? Ellisdale, Gage Gardens, Highland Park, Hillview. I said, because I done kicked butt in all of them, young fellow. Now what you want to do? So quite naturally, his classmates, oh, he got you, he got you. So from that point forward, everything was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I ended up in the classroom. And uh, um, I, can say, I can honestly say this. It was, 
Because I used to tell my wife, yeah, you know, she's got to do lesson plans and you know, get out of here, you pushing paper. I used to carry a 90-pound jackhammer. You're writing up, get out of here. But my experiences in the classroom said, woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> that jackhammer wasn't too bad, you know, because you, you put your work in. Teachers, I mean, I, I, I gained a, a tremendous amount of respect for teachers once I became a teacher. So, and I won't let anybody talk about teachers because it's not easy, certainly now in, in, in this day and age. It's, 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 uh, it's a little bit difficult right now simply because of, uh, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons, but, uh, you know, you just have to try to, manage um, a, a lot of outside problems that come to your classroom. And it's sometimes difficult, but you'll learn, you know, you'll learn in time to, you know, the, the relationships you have to build and, and that kind of thing, so. But it's 10-15. Questions? Yes. Well, right now, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, just thought about some things and just, uh, I, I think it would just be a convenience of resources that, uh, you know, we, just facilities from that standpoint. I mean, we have Rizzoletti Field over here, but we have to walk 30, 40 kids across the street, back and forth from this weight room or the other weight room and everything. And I know it's a, you know, it was, you know, I recognized that when I came here um, as far as it would be so beautiful to have everything right there so that we didn't have to have to worry about traffic and these type things and, and kids going to save a lot and, and all those other things that kids do. So, um, I think it's just a, a matter of, of, of some resources, uh, convenience of resources, and to be honest, Jim, um, I think it's uh, times are different now, and you have you have you have problems, um, social problems that come to your team, and it's not just Timken. You know, I talk to other coaches, and they have they have problems at Tuslaw. Uh, they have problems at Sandy Valley. They have problems at Indian Valley. So, you know, to say any specific resource would be the, the end-all, be-all, I'm not going to stand here and, and tell you that that would be the answer because you could have the greatest facility in the world, but that doesn't mean they'll come. That doesn't mean they'll be on time. That doesn't mean they'll be... Uh, accountable. Um, I don't know how far that goes to develop character and instill that hard work and discipline in those kids. Those are the things that I constantly work on daily. So it's a battle. But, you know, those additional resources would help through that process. <laughs> Maybe 
Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.